Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, a quick announcement before we begin. Many of you know this already, but for those who don't, I'm going to be offering a year-long course. It's called The Mythic Body, and it's a course of mythic somatic study, and it's meant really for dedicated students who want to better understand the ecstatic, animate heart of myth that we explore on the podcast, and to deepen their access to the imaginal core of human experience explore the foundational knowledge that's common to global ritual traditions and enhance their practice in their own traditions. It's meant to stand as a contrast to some of the faster-paced learning models that are out there these days. It's meant to be slow and steady and deliberate so that we can really get into a deep space together of understanding and feeling and exploring the mythic. It's going to have deep relevance and deep applicability for body workers, somatic instructors, therapists, depths psychologists, storytellers, public speakers, artists, writers, activists, policymakers, community builders, and really all knowledge seekers. So if this sounds like something that you'd be interested in, you can email me at josh.shrei at gmail.com. That's J-O-S-H dot S-C-H-R-E-I at gmail.com. And I can send you more info about the course. It is already almost full, but don't let that stop you from emailing me because if this course fills up, there are going to be more offerings in the future. I'm really excited to get to explore these topics that we explore on the podcast on a deeper level together, on a more somatic level. And I would love to have you involved in whatever way makes sense. So shoot me an email and we can spend a mythic year together. So as you know, on this podcast, I spend a lot of time talking about flow states, about mystic experience, and about its central relevance to the human story. And today, we're going to go a little deeper into how these states have been mapped, not by modern Western scientists, though that has been valuable, but how these states have been mapped by the peoples who experience them themselves. Flow states, mystic states, are they indescribable? Or have they in fact been described in great detail by the people who actually went there? In the mid to late 1800s, psychologist and philosopher William James, who was also a mountaineer and a big fan of exploring altered states of consciousness, began his work of cataloging and categorizing mystic experience, states of conjunctive consciousness, states of deep flow. He was one of the first in the modern West to attempt to do this, and his seminal work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, went a long way towards helping people understand that the original foundation of spiritual and religion is not abstract ideology that comes later, (laughs) but is fundamentally based on felt experience in states of rapture. You can trace a direct line between his work and the work of modern-day flow state enthusiasts like Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler, both of whom have made the brain chemistry of flow states accessible to the masses and elucidated the central importance of these states to the human journey. If you want to understand the biological mechanics of flow states, Kotler has a great 
book called Mapping Cloud Nine, but you have to get past his repetitive, derogatory use of the term "sky daddy" to refer to all things religious. Mapping is an interesting word for it, however. For all that Kotler reveals about the brain chemistry of flow states, he spends very little time actually mapping the geography of flow from an experiential level. There is a biological mechanics to flow, right, that is increasingly being mapped, but the internal geography that varies from person to person, culture to culture, where you journey, what you feel, the luminosities, conjoinings, ecstasies, interconnectivities, relationalities, kinesthetic reconfigurations of time, space, place, being, the bristlings and the sproutings and outpouring. The rhizomatic branchings, the bright cores radiating, the liquid drop at the center manifesting of itself by itself into infinity, the landscapes, mindscapes, somatoscapes, shamanoscapes, the mandalas of interpenetrating triangles and wheels of fire, the mountain ranges of bone, whole ranges of bone, great self-appearing cremation grounds of ash and bone. Those are harder to describe. This ineffability, in fact, is right at the heart of how William James described mystic experience. Quote, As James realized, there were several qualities that reports of religious experiences had in common. The most obvious and the most frustrating was the quality of ineffability, the impossibility of explaining what the experience was like. And of course, all of us have had that feeling of ineffability. Man, I just can't describe it. We've all said that at one time or another, probably. What I felt it would be like trying to describe a sunrise. How does one convey in words all the simultaneous energetics and luminosities and stirrings of dawn? I had this experience. It was like the external self disintegrated. I was absorbed into something greater. I was simultaneously in myself and outside myself. I saw the object of devotion at the center of a great swirling vortex of time and space. I held infinity in the palm of my hand. All of these are pointers that point at something that cannot, maybe even should not, be described. Right? And we don't necessarily need to describe it in words. Once you put words to something, it alters it, takes it out of its inherent isness into something else, and that something else fails to capture the glory and majesty of what we experienced. So, a lot of people in the modern study of mystic states simply call them indescribable. But it's also important to situate the modern study of mystic states in its time and place, and to understand that studying the minds and experiences of people who live in a postmodern culture that, for the most part, has been ripped from mystic context and that has systematically decentered the mystical, may not be a full-spectrum view of how human beings historically have experienced mystic states. In other words, mystic experience might be indescribable in our culture because we've failed to culturally describe it. If one of James's research subjects in late 19th-century New England had zero cultural framework for the things he or she might experience while on mescaline or while in a flow state, the experience might very well be ineffable or indescribable. In a culture that systematically removed its own mystic anchor points over the course of many hundreds of years, there may be very few anchor points left. What do I mean by removing mystic anchor points? Well, here's a short and painful story. 
One summer morning in 1765 or so, a young English boy around age eight or ten was walking in Peckham Rye. Quote, sauntering along, the boy looks up and sees a tree filled with angels, bright angelic wings bespangling every bough like stars. On returning home, the boy innocently related the incident to his parents. His father's initial reaction to what he assumed was a lie was to hit him. It was only his mother's intervention that saved him from a severe beating. Bright, angelic wings bespangling every bow like stars. That boy was William Blake, and it was one of the first visions in a life full of visions. For me, this story strikes a deep chord, the innocence of the visionary child, wide-eyed, a walking organ of perception, gaining access to this mystic world, but then meeting the cruel reality of a culture that had systematically driven the mystic imaginal from its heart. And I'm someone whose parents encouraged mystic visioning. But I know that there are still many little William Blakes out there, girls and boys who have access to vast geographies and psychoscapes, to things deep and creative and visionary, and who are told that it is irrational, irrelevant, or even sinful. Because really, the fact is that there's nothing ineffable, indescribable, outlandish, or even that unique about Blake's vision of a tree teeming with luminous beings. For how many centuries have Siberian shamans described the exact same thing? A great larch tree in the center of the forest, inhabited by otherworldly creatures and nests full of shamans. The tree, the world tree, the Tibetan lineage tree rife with animate forces, accessed in states of meditative rapture. The Islamic mystics describe such a tree, it's carved in Mesoamerican stone, invoked by firelight in the cold white winters across the Norse world. Have you been there? Have you seen it? Have you been to the teeming, teeming tree? For those cultures historically who tread the mystic space with great regularity, there's nothing indescribable about it. If William James had researched Siberian shamans or Tibetan tantrikas who make regular visits to very specifically mapped geographies of mythic consciousness, he may have found something totally different. Because shamanic travelscapes are detailed. Mystic unity has been mapped. The people who have tread its spaces describe in scintillating detail landscapes, architectures, tunnels, points, holes, vortexes, luminosities, configurations, all alive with entities, all manifesting in spirals. And not only do they describe them as uniquely personal visions, they describe them as tangible, externally existing landscapes that others can visit too. So when an Inuit acolyte goes on a very specific journey, say, to rescue the spirit of an afflicted person, there are landmarks to look for. There are very specific entities that need to be engaged. There are guardians and gatekeepers and placeholders and trees and stones of interest. So on the one hand, there's 
oh, I had this mystical experience and I really can't describe it. And now contrast that with something as specific as this. Many cultures will tell you that when you are in the spirit world and you come across food or someone happens to offer you a meal, don't taste the food there in the spirit world because you might get stuck there. You've heard this somewhere before, right? Was it from the Alaskan storytellers that you heard it? Or was it in Miyazaki's 2001 film, Spirited Away? It's an understanding you'll find all across the world. And think about it, this assumes a spirit world so vivid, so specific, so architected, so clear, that the traveler journeyer may actually be served a meal there, and then may have the opportunity to eat this meal, and may have to make a conscious decision there within that trance geography to refuse to eat. This level of specificity isn't unusual among cultures that practice trance journeying. When I was 16 years old, I did a high school report comparing Amazonian and Siberian trance shamanism. Shows you a little bit of where my mind was at when I was 16. At that time, the books on shamanic voyaging were few and far between. Joan Halifax's book, Shaman, the Wounded Healer. Michael Harner's The Way of the Shaman. And of course, Mircea Eliade's old classic, Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. I remember standing up there in my ripped jeans and Led Zeppelin t-shirt describing to a room full of bored kids the underworld of the Turco-Ugric shaman in detail. The dark forests of spruce and fir, the fortresses, the living stones, the journey of rescue that takes place, the specific entities one must engage. Ruled by Erlich, the lord of the underworld, whom the shaman must do battle with in order to free the spirit trapped there and heal the sickness. Tell me, where exactly does this battle take place? How is it that it is passed on from generation to generation, so that for hundreds of years, apprentices can go to the exact same place, probably see it differently, but go to the exact same place and engage with the exact same forces? One Inuit shaman describes it, quote, It is always by ecstatic journeying that the Angakok approaches the mother of the sea beasts, or Sila, in the sky. Some have visited the moon, some have circled the earth. They fly like birds. And then he talks about treading the same mythic geography that his grandfather tread. Quote, I am nothing compared with my grandfather. He could go down to the mother of the sea beasts, fly to the moon, or make excursions into space at will. This specificity of the mythic geography reaches its apex, perhaps, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, a staggeringly precise description of, and guide to, the mandalas of forces and animate beings and psychomythic structures that one encounters in intermediary states, not just death, but in deep meditative trance. This mandala of psychomytho-spiritual kinesis is fractal, self-repeating, guarded by gatekeepers at directional gates, teeming with half-animal dakinis and churners of the winds and wrathful dancers devouring mental constructs and roaring with the sound of thunder and bells and buzzing bees. It is charted in profound, radiant detail. So where does this imaginal world live? Is it brain chemistry? External reality? 
internal reality? Is it the meeting place of individual consciousness and the larger world? Is it all of the above at once? To understand this requires asking at the beginning a simple question. Do all people see the same things in these states? Does the Tibetan Book of the Dead presume that everyone sees Kuntuzangpo and Kuntuzangmo, the naked blue and white emanation deities of pure radiant consciousness awareness bliss? Do Christians see tantric imagery when they die? No, of course not. As anthropologist David Lewis Williams says, quote, We must note the mental imagery we experience in altered states is derived from memory and is hence culturally specific. The visions of an Inuit person living in the Canadian snowfields will be different than the vivid intimations that Hildegard of Bingen believed God sent to her. The Inuit will see polar bears and seals that may speak to him or her. Hildegard saw angels and strange creatures suggested by scripture, and the medieval wall paintings and illuminations which she was familiar with. The spectrum of consciousness is wired, but its content is mostly cultural. A visual image reaching the brain is decoded by being matched against a store of experience. End quote. So the specifics are culturally determined, but here's the key. Culturally determined does not mean random, or that there's even much inherent difference. Across cultures, there is a definitive geography, a common set of landmarks and configurations to the mystic experience, a series of textures, a common mandala of points, axes, and spirals, a wheel of animate forces, of flowing nectars and animate beings. There is a blueprint, one could say, a skeletal geography to the mystic experience. And there are cartographers who have mapped this geography for thousands of years. They've mapped it in story and art, in ritualized practice. It's been mapped in Tibetan mandalas and in grids and lattices on cave walls, in patterns that help us more deeply articulate relationships between mind and body, land and community and cosmos. The journeyer treads this space, maps it in art, and then the art becomes a map for others to follow to journey to the same place. We benefit from the cartography of those who have tread this mystic space for tens of thousands of years. And key to that cartography is a mythic structure. A mythic structure built of art and story and ritual and song, through which one can perceive and experience the forces of nature and consciousness. There is deep value to having a defined mythology when treading mystic space. For with a defined mythology, one can fit the mystic experience into the larger cultural mandala, can fit it into a world of natural laws and communal dynamics. Without this cultural lens, the mystic mythic may just seem indescribable, and we may miss out on a whole lot of deep personal and cultural applicability. Without a mythos anchored in art, song, and ritual, Mystic experience may live forgotten at the edges of society, where it drifts, unanchored, untethered, disconnected. So the maps of mystic space that thousands of generations of artists, journeyers, drummers, singers have left us are potent, that we might have a more harmonious relationship with land and with each other, and so that knowledge may be anchored in context. Today on the podcast, the mystic is tangible. It's real. It's not just brain chemistry. It's navigable space. And a whole lot of people have been there and charted it for us. Let's follow them in. Mapping the ecstatic geographies of the mystic, this time on the Emerald. 
Why do so many people paint spirals, dots, and zigzags? This was a question that David Lewis Williams asked over many years as an anthropologist. Not so long ago, he began looking for commonalities in cave art and noticed how closely these common visual themes aligned with commonalities described in states of trance. He saw that not only do people paint these things, they see them when in trance. Ecstatic experience across the world involves vortexes, points, spirals, luminous threads, portals, entryways, thresholds. He saw how trance journeying almost everywhere in the world involves the navigation of a three-tiered cosmos. How there are holes that lead to underworlds and portals to upper worlds, and these entranceways are described by people from Siberia to the Amazon. From his book, The Mind in the Cave, quote, In the first and lightest stage of trance, people may experience geometric visual percepts that include dots, grids, zigzags, nested catenary curves, and meandering lines. Because these percepts are wired into the human nervous system, all people, no matter what their cultural background, have the potential to experience them. They flicker, scintillate, expand, contract, and combine with one another, independently of a light source, and can be experienced with the eyes closed or open. You've probably experienced this, right? Meditating, in ceremony, in ritual, dancing, fasting, during extended periods of no sleep. You've seen them, right? The dots, the swirls, the spirals. Quote, the Tucano of the Amazon described the initial stages of Yahe trance, that's entheogenic trance, in which grid patterns, zigzag lines, and undulating lines alternate with eye-shaped motifs, many-colored concentric circles, or endless chains of brilliant dots. They depict these forms on their houses and on bark, and specifically identify them as elements of their visions. There's a beautiful simplicity to this, right? Where do all the common patterns we see in art come from? They come from patterns inherent to both land and the human brain. The land forms in spiraling canyons. The celestial bodies coalesce in dots, like dewdrops. Lightning and water undulate in zigzags. The brain reflects the larger patterning of creation because the brain evolved around these same spirals and dots and textures that we encounter in nature. In trance, we are thrown into this current, into these energetic textures. These are textures of the ancestral mind. Deeper into trance, the experience becomes more vivid. Quote, In a second stage recognized by the Tucano, there is the formation of larger images, mythical beings, the master of snakes, the sun father, the anaconda. At this point, many people experience a swirling vortex or rotating tunnel that seems to surround them and draw them into its depths. Sometimes a bright light at the center of the field creates this tunnel-like perspective. Westerners use culture-specific words like funnels, alleys, cones, pits, and corridors to describe the vortex. In other cultures, it is often experienced as entering a hole in the ground. Shamans typically speak of reaching the spirit world via such a hole. The Inuit of the Hudson Bay describe a road down through the earth that starts in the house where they perform their rituals. They also speak of a shaman passing through the sea. He almost glides as if falling through a tube. The Bella Coola of the American Northwest Coast believe such a hole is situated between the doorway and the fireplace. The Algonquians of Canada travel through the layers of the earth. A hole leading to the bowels of the earth is the pathway of the spirits, they say. 
the vortex and the ways in which its imagery is perceived are clearly universal experiences, end quote. Points, dots, zigzags, iconic forms, and of course, the vortex. In many cultures, a cave, a hole, a portal. A Juhuan shaman speaks of traveling through a cave through a wide body of flowing water to the sound of singing. The Aranda speak of caverns of flowing water. The Greeks built their sacred visionary sites in caverns with flowing water because sacred geography recapitulates anatomy. The cavern and flowing water takes the yatromantis, the seer, into the state of trance in which one experiences caverns flowing with water. Trance practitioners experience weightlessness, a sense of flight. Flight makes up a big part of the initiate's experience. In some cultures, a journey of ecstatic flight is totally necessary for healing. Shamans soar through the cosmos. The Tibetan and Mongolian seers rocket across the world on their drums. They assume the form of birds. Travel, travel, they travel in the place where land and mind are one thing. What are the limits to this geography? What is beyond the starry sky? What is deeper than the underworld? Within the scapes the shamans fly are perfectly realized architectures, landscapes, seascapes, that are given shape through story and art, and are then available for the next traveler. And like I said, this gets incredibly specific. Eliade describes Inuit shamans teaching their student acolytes how to recognize when the goddess of the sea beasts has placed a wall outside someone's house that is creating an energetic block, and then teaches them how to knock it down with their shoulder. This is a specificity of vision that boggles the Western mind. This is a mapping of the psychosphere on a level that is difficult for us to understand. Because we aren't raised seeing anything inherent in visions, in spirals, in lines, in dots, in vortexes, in spirit voices that we experience in connected states. Quote, non-Western shamans who experience the same neurologically generated somatic sensations do not attempt to assess their experiences objectively. Instead, they construe them in culturally contingent ways that are often different from Western reports. We, on the other hand, with our postmodern minds, have no cultural framework for the things experienced in trance. At best, we might see symbols rather than experience an actual somatic journey. Or, since our experience of the world does not fit within a larger mythic construct, we might just see chaos. If you ever want to laugh out loud, go to the site erowid.org and start perusing through the user posts detailing hundreds upon hundreds of experiences with various psychedelic substances. Here's one from a user named Evil Wizard who injected himself with 95 milligrams of 5-MeO-DMT, and let's just say that that's not a recommended dose. Quote, Ghosts stood around pantomiming the needle injection and suggesting tourniquets. I thought they were paramedics who were finding my body and was wondering why they weren't helping me. I could hear them calling my name. I resigned myself to my mistake and my death and let go. Then I found myself in a green field that went on forever, filled with some of those self-dribbling elf balls. They were each humming their own little tone, and they were all connected to each other. They were very comforting. It was so nice. It was like being cuddled by bunnies totally reassuring and peaceful. My identity ego was less than it was before. I felt that these were the Elysian fields out of Greek mythology. Gradually, I connected with each elf soul. 
I felt that these were souls that had completed their karmic turns. As they each turned their attention to me, I saw a golden spiral like a pie chart. I contemplated life's big mysteries, and as I solved each one, the chart filled in. I could hear them discussing my progress and supporting me. After the last mystery was solved, the spiral became a circle. The entire universe and everyone in it resolved into a single thing, and I felt the truth that we all are one. The circle universe hummed a tone, and I hummed with it. This felt like the near-death experiences I read about, where you are greeted by an all-encompassing light slash Jesus slash whatevs. The elves seemed really impressed that I had managed to get here and figure this out without dying. They cheered and gave me a slow clap. I knew that I would live and could return here anytime. For Evil Wizard, this journey into the virtual Elysian fields ended with a 911 call, and I certainly hope that Evil Wizard and his partner are doing great. Who knows how exactly this experience was integrated later. Without a community of elders to tell us, who knows what those self-dribbling elf balls are? Without ritual that builds and reinforces psychic structures and landscapes, one might ask, what is an experience like that ultimately for? Unsurprisingly, studies on psychedelic use in modern Western minds often find fairly chaotic results. DMT users report random disembodied beings, nonsensical iconography, robot alien lizards sailing seas of detritus, random imagery from commercials, or how about this from rapper ASAP Rocky in the Netflix documentary Have a Good Trip. No lie, a rainbow shot out of my dick, and it had a sound with it, like... And suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us, says Hunter S. Thompson. And the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and diving around the car, which was going about 100 miles an hour with the top down to Las Vegas. But sometimes, even the seemingly random still carries with it the portal to mystic transformation. As Sturgill Simpson croons, there's a gateway in our minds that leads somewhere out there far beyond this plane, where reptile aliens made of light cut you open and pull out all of your pain. There's a gateway in our minds that leads somewhere out there far beyond this plane Where reptile aliens made of light cut you open and pull out all your pain Now, compare this postmodern carnival with the luminous, precise articulations of visionary worlds that exist in Shipibo or Huichol art. A fully realized overlapping mandala of land, animate forces, and individual consciousness. A brilliant, well-formed latticework of energy. Here we see something of the contrast between postmodern randomness and a fully formed world. A fully formed world. Recently, Jamie Wheel released a book called Recapture the Rapture, which has a lot of great stuff in it. Wheel's been on the podcast circuit recently, and I agree with a whole lot of what he's bringing about the essential importance and nature of rapturous experience. But one place where I think he and I see things slightly differently is on the importance of a fully formed mythic structure to accompany the rapturous experience. He's been chiming in a lot about ethics questions within the psychedelic renaissance, and one of the things he seems particularly worked up about is that psychedelic facilitators shouldn't impose anything resembling a worldview on their patients, shouldn't mix their own, you know, chakra ideology or whatever into their therapy sessions. 
Once a basic context is set, the experience should be all your experience. It's not for the therapist when you're in a vulnerable, suggestible state to impose their worldview on you. This has obvious and dangerous implications. Now, this is a very interesting topic, because on one hand, I agree with him. I don't want some rando psilocybin therapist inventing a half Lakota, half Marianne Williamson, half neo-tantric, half Anthony Robbins overlay to my mystic experience, right? Just let it be my experience. Keep your worldviews and ideologies out of it. There's a very understandable suspicion in the postmodern world of what I would call fully formed worldviews. Understandable why? Because look at what people with fully formed worldviews do. They declare, this is how it is and it is no other way. They demarcate a line between the saved and the damned, burn people alive. Fully formed worldviews lead to fascism, right? Or the Inquisition. Fully formed worldviews cause suffering. But, of course, as we're now discovering, so does discarding fully formed worldviews altogether. In dismissing all fully formed worldviews, in dismissing, say, the fully formed worldview of the Siberian shaman because of the horrific deeds of the Catholic Church, as people like <coughs> Richard <coughs> Dawkins do, we discard the bridge between ourselves and nature, a framework of context for our minds, a lens through which to understand natural forces. We throw out the very thing that allowed us to survive for thousands of years. And there's another thing here. When we opt for just let me have my experience, we ignore a simple fact. The absence of a fully formed worldview is its own worldview. There are implications and repercussions to this as well. A therapist sitting back and letting you have your experience is as much of a statement about the nature of reality than if they were to guide you through a thoroughly described and articulated mandala of animate beings and forces and energetic architectures. Because brain chemistry is not about an isolated individual having their own experience. The experience is never just your experience. Consciousness is an agreement with land. Experience in trance is the meeting place of the individual and the natural world of forces that we inhabit. The bridge is neurological, biological. It is made of story. The bridge, it is made of fallen, rotting tree bark. It is made of mythos. It is made of light, the bridge. It is made of mycelial strands. The bridge is woven from luminosity and flesh and mantras and choirs of sirens singing. The sound is the bridge. The story is the bridge. The tongue is a great bridge. The brain is not a unit. It is an agreement. To pretend there is such a thing as an experience that is all individual, that ignores the animate wheel of forces, has as many dangerous implications as getting too stuck in a worldview. What dangers? Well, in the absence of a fully formed mythosphere, the individual modern mystic defaults into the existing subtext context of monetized individualism, whose tentacles are so pervasive they are difficult to see. The mystic experience becomes all about the individual journey, a journey which is thought to be of the utmost importance. We end up with a mysticism that, because it cannot be evaluated in a circle of elders, or stand up to the test of rigorous communal conversation, or express itself within the context of a ritual system, or bind a community to a shared ethics, or artistically refresh a culture that is open to mythic reimagining, 
can only express within the predetermined structures of late capitalism as a career change, a reevaluation of individual life path yet again, a commodity, a new type of retreat offering, a social media post that is sure to get likes, because what other purpose would mystic experience serve than to reinforce our own specialness and gain us more followers? So the modern mystic experience vacillates between the chaos of postmodern psychedelia, flying elf balls run amok in untethered minds, to narcissistic self-isolating aggrandizement, to reinforcement of late capitalist ideology, because that's the water in which we swim, and that is sad the context that we have made for the mystic. But the mythosphere at its best is a framework with implications for individual consciousness, community, and cosmos, a framework that has proved absolutely essential for human culture since humans have been humans. The question now is, are we wise enough to co-create or co-discover or rediscover a mytho-ideology that doesn't involve seeing half the world as others, that doesn't become its own gospel of rigidity. I like to hope that we are, because the alternative wrought by postmodern humanism of centerless fragments floating in a vacuum, plundering a deanimated world for content and cash into infinity, brings its own deep problems of isolation, detachment, anxiety, violence, chaos, loss of center. We need a grand mythic narrative with the artistic mystic right at the center. There has never been a culture that survived long without it. So there's deep value to the mythoscape. But here the modern mind wants to go, the mythoscape ultimately is still just a construct, isn't it? I mean, you said yourself, it's universal because it's explainable through common brain chemistry. It's a construct, right? Construct, sure. It's a construct, but also not quite. It's a co-construct along lines that already exist within nature, along lines that have inherent value and implication for individual and community. It's not just brain chemistry. It's not a fabrication. It's an alignment. What do I mean? Let's go back to David Lewis Williams for a minute. So he spends all these years, his life work really, to show the commonalities in trance experience and to show how human, artistic, and ritual structures grow from this substrate of trance. And then at the end, in a highly perplexing move, he says, see, all religion is just brain chemistry. It just grows out of common hallucinations. For him, the Occam's razor, the simplest, neatest explanation, is that this is all common because it is universal brain chemistry. Well, I've got an even slimmer Occam's razor for him. Simplest explanation. These things, these forces, these structures, these animate beings are perceived in common ways because they actually exist. It's in the design. The brain chemistry mirrors the pattern of the outside world, and the inner world and outer world have a deep overlap. What is land without consciousness? What is consciousness without land? What is the glorious overlap between the two? Even if by some strange definition trance experience is just brain chemistry, wouldn't you want to create a mythosphere around it? Wouldn't you want to create a ritual framework around it? Wouldn't it be the most important thing there is? Wouldn't the navigation of the mind and the support of it and the fostering of it be the most important thing there is so that minds don't careen untethered through lands of flying elf balls? The brain chemistry explanation for Lewis Williams implies that because access to these visional spaces can be explained biologically, 
They are somehow invalid, hallucinatory, have no inherent meaning. But, of course, these common configurations aren't hallucinations. They aren't random at all. Why points? Why spirals? Why axes? Why the world tree? These commonalities point to the heart of human interaction with the world around us. For these energetic configurations are the building blocks of nature itself. Nature emanates from a point, manifests along axes, unfolds in vortexes and spirals. Nature is teeming with animate forces. The geography of the mythic mind is a unitary construction of individual and the natural world, and therefore points the way to a harmonious relationship with nature. The brain chemistry of the mystic experience mirrors the vibrational dynamics of creation, which itself manifests in points, in centrifugal swirlings, in vortexes in a universe that is axial. Axial, axis, axis, axis. Culture upon culture upon culture upon culture upon culture describes a world tree that they have seen and felt and climbed and whose boughs they have rested in. A world tree dripping with dew. Growing sometimes from a great spring, its roots in the underworld, its branches in the overworld, nested with singing birds. The world tree hums, the world tree rings. From Mecca to Asia Minor to Mesoamerica to Colombia to Japan. Why? Because it is within the structure of brains, bodies, and universes. The world tree, the spinal column, the brainstem, the notochord, the neural tube of the fetus, the axis of creation, the spoke of gravity, the center of the ritual, the place where right now you are standing. The world tree is a somatic experience of the actual architecture of the natural world, which is, in fact, axial. It is a felt somatic experience of the way things actually are. When you stand up without falling down, it is because you are connected to the world tree. When you perceive something, that perception runs through the world tree. When you have a mystic experience in which the self is absorbed into the greater, that greater that you are being absorbed into is the body of the world tree. It's not an idea, it's felt experience. It's a function of disjointed postmodernism and poststructuralism that what once were felt realities are now concepts and ideas. And once you relegate something to the realm of concepts and ideas, then you can argue their validity into infinity because they're not anchored to anything. Add a dash of social stratification and leisure time, and soon you end up with a whole class of philosophers who do nothing but trade ideas that have no anchor points in felt somatic experience. And from that place, felling world trees is easy work. As writer Mark Halsey says about two famous post-structuralist philosophers, quote, Philosophically, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari are opposed to trees. Specifically, they position themselves against arborescent thought, thought which, like a tree, judges the world from one fixed point, or requires that thinking proceed in only one direction. In place of foundations and immutable bodies, Deleuze and Guattari advocate a rhizomatic approach to philosophy and to life. As they write, there are no points or positions in a rhizome, such as those found in a structure, tree, or root. Critically, they charge that many people have a tree growing in their heads. In a sense, the challenge issued by Deleuze and Guattari is to kill this tree, 
or as Nietzsche might put it, to draw the curtain on the twilight of our idols, end quote. So I get it. Deleuze is talking about the relationship between fixed and fluid, right? Centered and decentered. And the tree for him is a metaphor for what is fixed. And I'm all for expanding beyond fixed, single-pointed views also. But here's what's important. For Deleuze, this philosophy of trees and rhizomes is an idea. This philosophy of abandoning all fixed points is a concept. It's not built into the somatic structure of the human being or the natural world. In other words, ideologies of no fixed points or no solid positions are great until you have to stand up and walk or sail to Hawaii from Polynesia in an outrigger canoe looking to the sky for a star to guide you. You better have a fixed point to structure your world around then. It's all fine and good to sit at home and think about what it would be like to have a rhizomatic mind instead of an arboreal one. And hey, I love rhizomes. I love mycelial models of communication. I'll be interviewing Sophie Strand soon, and I know she's a big fan of rhizomes, and we'll be talking about gods as spores and such. But the thing about Deleuze, again, is that these are all disembodied concepts. Gilles Deleuze literally stayed at home and thought about things. Little, if any, of what he wrote about actually translated into anything meaningful in his body or life, and he directly admitted that. He basically said that academics' lives aren't interesting and that he had little interest in actually living out or forging the models that he wrote about. So, sure, let's spend our time chopping down mental trees. The tree as an idea is easy to chop down, but that's not the tree. That's a concept. The tree is somatic. We do have a tree in our head, Jill. It's the brainstem. It's the spine. It's a world of gravity and verticality. So, not so fast on drawing the curtain on the idols. Nietzsche actually spoke of taking the idols and shaking them to see which ones are hollow and which ones ring. The world tree rings. Still it rings. From its trunk it rings. Through its branches and leaves it rings. Through the fractal worm bores in its bark it rings. Towering above the canopy it rings and rings. It rings and rings and pours with dew. It hums with bird calls. The wood of the world tree rings in the beat of the drum. The world tree roots and rises forever within the void. Souls in rapture hang upside down from its branches. Shamans nest there. Go there. Go there. Go there. Climb to the very top of the world tree. And a white reindeer will welcome you with a cascade of milk. Drink it up and disappear once and for all. So you can try to ideate your way away from the world tree but you won't be successful because center exists. Center is at the heart of nearly all ritual, which takes place in circles necessarily, which revolves around points necessarily. Center is present in the body and the mind and the myth and the mandala and the community and the natural world and the cosmos. The fundamental image painted on cave walls of a dot in the center of a circle is a focal point, and a portal, and a work of art, and something the brain experiences in trance, and something to construct a ritual around, and a community around. It is a harmonic relationship, a geography we have navigated and mapped and understood its value. 
The dot in the circle is the focus within the mind, the person within a community, the mother and child. Tyson Yonkaporta talks about how that nucleus of mother and child, the point within the circle, is the heart of the society. We need center points to construct our worlds around. And in the absence of traditional center points, we unknowingly create our own because we naturally gravitate around centers. We don't get away from center that easily. Postmodern philosophies of complete centerlessness won't stand the test of gravity, nor will postmodern cultures of centerlessness. All things eventually collapse and are drawn back to center. Only in a postmodern world can you speak of the centerless, and that centerlessness is in itself ultimately an effort to find center again. Just as a collapsing wave splays out in reaching fingers of sea foam before being drawn back inwards. Even amoebas move around a center of gravity. Rhizomes branch in relation to a center of gravity. Zoom far enough out, and Jackson Pollock paintings have a center. Even the freest form of freeform jazz always resolves back to a bass note in a particular key. Trying to create music that is centerless is difficult. And if you did happen to stumble your way into it, people would leave the room. In the time of centerlessness, there is a rampant fear of the fully formed mythology. When we talk about the preciseness of a mandala, it can be uncomfortable how structured and precise it is. That's just one way of looking at it, right? We want to say. You're not saying it's the way it is, right? It's easier to view energy as something that is liquid, amorphous, unstructured, always spoken about in terms of flow. But the creative biological matrix unfolds in very clearly defined symmetries, in crystalline structures. The five-pointed mandala of the human body and the human hand and the morning glory flower and the pentacle is precise and clearly articulated. It is fully formed and realized. There's an anthropological position popular among new atheists that fully formed ideologies grew from human beings needing to make sense in a frightening world. That the rise of ritual mythic practice is fear-based or an attempt to control externals in an uncontrollable situation. How little credit this gives the ancestral mind. Fully formed mythic worldviews arose from thousands upon thousands of years of watching and feeling and navigating the body-mind and the land and the community and their interpenetration. The ancestors at Chauvet Cave, with their cultural continuity of tens of thousands of years, gazed up every night at the same stars in motion, without anywhere to rush off to, any progress metric they had to fulfill. And so they saw and felt and tasted the plants and observed their symmetry and saw how stone and water interact and when storms come, and how animal tracks change with weather, and how water flows downhill. East remained east as they watched. West remained west as they watched. Far from fearful half-wits trying to stake out permanence in a fleeting world, they actually saw something that we rarely in the modern world see. They saw rhythmic temporal consistency. 
temporal consistency in which the fundamental forces of life, not abstract human overlays, but the fundamental forces of life, repeated, re-expressed, could be felt in deep time and responded to and charted. Within this 100,000-year epoch of felt experience, individual somatics determined ideas. Somatics drove myths. Myths had a body. In a nature-based culture, ideas that don't have a body don't last. The proving ground is the world and the gut and the breath and the actual community dynamics that result through the myth. These days, the script has flipped. Ideas are determining somatics. And this is a problem. For when you lose the body of a philosophy, you can just come up with any old thing. Lose the world tree that axis and completely nutso things seem to make sense. Yeah, let's just blast enough calcium carbonate into the atmosphere to block the sun's rays and the planet will cool down and that'll solve climate change. That's called losing the world tree. Kanye West's mother dies of liposuction complications and then he goes and gets diamonds implanted in his teeth, losing the world tree. I see someone post on Facebook, sure, I'll take Elon Musk's chip in my head in the spirit of adventure, losing the world tree. Connected to the world tree, the nature gods pour content through this somatic vessel and that content contains valuable insight into the laws of nature itself. Now, with our fear of fully formed worldviews, we've disconnected ourselves from the world tree, but somehow we think it's okay to let TikTok pour content into the somatic vessel instead. So post-structuralism intellectually destroys the world tree. But when human beings actually interact with the world, they feel and experience and depict remarkably similar things that are not so easily slain. These are the fundamental geographies of the mystic imaginal. Things in nature spiral around points. Medicine wheels are reflections of our basic somatic experience in the world, of a cosmos that self-organizes in spheres. Why are medicine wheels circles? Because the world is round. Eyeballs are round because the world is round. The sky and earth form a sphere bisected by a horizon line. The medicine wheel is internal and external. It is a depiction of how the body perceives the world and how the world is. Are east and west an internal or external experience? They're both. The navigation of the currents and tides and points and lines and vortexes of the psychosphere in trance is the navigation of life and land and community. It is the navigation of pattern. Thoughts move like this. And murmurations of starlings do too. And prayer flags fluttering in the breeze. The ebb and flow of tides gives us insight into how to evaluate everything from relationships to political movements. Consciousness and land are deeply linked. Points of story and worship in land are points in consciousness. Bridges in land are bridges in consciousness, thresholds. External ritual spaces are architected to take people across thresholds. This is what a temple is for. The temple is also the body which itself is architected to take people across thresholds. The temple is also the cosmos, shape-shifting in its gleaming constellational map around center. The temple faces east. We instinctively look towards the dawn. 
Our world is built around points and axes, bisected, split into four-directional gates at which gatekeepers stand. Our world is spiraling with helpers, inhabited by luminous beings of upper world and underworld, directional energies, points, dots, lines, flows, meters, spirals, just like a mandala, just like our minds, just like the land. Land becomes a portal to a deeper way of seeing, and from this mystic navigation comes, if one is paying attention, the possibility of navigating life from a place of kinesthesis, feeling, direct perception, understanding how a community pulses and drifts and recoalesces, understanding when a relationship is a vortex into which one could pour untold amounts of energy and never find equilibrium. Understanding the basic principles of wave dynamics and discourse. Understanding the interpenetration between nature and mind, here and there, subject and object. So that one can develop what William Blake called double vision. Quote, What to others a trifle appears, fills me full of smiles or tears. For double the vision my eyes do see. And a double vision is always with me. With my inward eye, tis an old man gray. With my outward, a thistle across my way. The old man gray is the recognition of the shimmering populace of animate entities that live at the intersection of our perception and the external world. Linked to place, genus loci, and linked to us, co-agreements of land and perception outside us and inside us at the same time. All cultures repeat all cultures describe this mythic land mandala of animate beings. The mythosphere is populated just as land is populated. The Sahara Desert teems with very, very specific pervasive life forms. The Antarctic. There is not a square centimeter of land on this planet that does not exhibit life so-called Death Valley is rife with animacy. And then we wonder why the inner mandala of mystic experience is always described as populated. Of course it's populated. The world is populated. Of course it's specific. The world is specific. Why would it be otherwise? Why would it be anything other than bristling with life and personality? A million pine needles shine at golden hour. The sun gilds each one, each one gold and gleaming. A million pine needles gold and gleaming. A thousand plateaus, a net of jewels, dewdrops on a dawn spiderweb, intricate fractals of personhood. The Greeks had a god for everything, for moods, for times of day, for phases of dawn, for types of waves, for each and every river, for each oak, for specific sounds, for momentary configurations of light and water. There is a specific crow-headed goddess, the Tibetan Book of the Dead tells us, who drinks from the cup of our skulls all the mental dissonance we might be experiencing. There is another particular green goddess whose ringing bell smooths all the vibratory resonance from disharmonious actions. Don't analyze this. Instead, feel the crow's beak dip into your skull and start to sip up mental dissonance. Hear the bell feel the smoothing. Navigating the world is feeling our way through animacy. The ritual icon at the heart of the great temple of Jagannath, a hub for millions upon millions of people, 
is replaced every 12 years when a particular dream arrives to a particular seer, a dream involving owls and cobras. Animacy is everywhere, right in front of our eyes. Christianity seems to us now as a monotheistic wall. Chip away the wall and a thousand animate saints stare back with imaginal eyes. As Sophie Strand writes, Saints lived in certain places. Their relics were nestled in grottos and churches built over stone formations that had been sacred for thousands of years prior to the life of Jesus. You went on pilgrimage to a holy place, knowing full well that place and saint were synonymous. The place is the saint. In India, the place is the goddess. The goddess is the place. Is the individual consciousness beholding the place? Is the all-encompassing consciousness that transcends the place and the observer of the place? Being is an agreement. Subject, verb, object together make one sentence. There is no verbless or objectless subject, right? You can't speak of subject without speaking of object and verb for what would identify the subject as subject. The fact that they are doing something in relation to an object. Likewise, there is no subjectless or objectless verb. What would be doing what to what? And there is no subjectless or verbless object. What would make it an object unless it were being enacted upon by a subject? Describe to me the universe without individual consciousness. You can't. The Paleolithic painter, the stone wall, and the humming, humming space between is one mytho-imaginal co-created being. One being vibrating in the dark resonance chamber of deep time in ritual, repetitive co-agreement. Springing into life, beholding, creating, dying, re-arising. You, I, the vibrational resonance traveling between us, is it not its own agreement, its own being? And this is where Lewis Williams's work, though I love it, really starts to break down. To say there is an outer world that manifests in axes, center points, spirals, geometries, flows, and animate creatures of symmetry and precision, and an inner world that manifests along these exact same lines, and the two worlds have nothing to do with one another, that the inner world is a hallucination or is random is logically indefensible. This is the subject-object split in its full glory. We have brains that arose in response to a world of scintillating specificity that developed mechanisms and configurations that are directly related and connected and interlocked and weave together and shine in holographic reflective patterns together. And the fundamental tenet of all the cultures who've walked the earth until a few hundred years ago is that this world is populated with non-human persons. We navigate a world utterly populated with persons. As Stephen Beyer says in Singing to the Plants, quote, Spirits of place and nature have many of the qualities of people. Self-awareness, understanding, personal identity, volition, speech, memory. They are autonomous. They come and go as they wish. They may unilaterally initiate or terminate a relationship with a human. They can provide information or insight that the recipient finds surprising or previously unknown. Relationships with spirits may be comforting, demanding, dangerous, and exhausting, just as with human persons. 
As a result of such relationships, other than human persons may provide information, insight, power, vision, healing, protection, songs, and ceremonies. The receipt of such gifts entails reciprocal obligations, just as with human persons. The shaman's relationship with such spirits is the core of Amazonian shamanism, end quote. So this is a culture built around what Thomas Blackburn called the interacting community of sentient creatures. Enrique Salmon, as Bayer reports of the Tarahumara, speaks of kin-centric ecology, an awareness that life in any environment is viable only when humans view the life surrounding them as kin. And the way to access this world is specifically in the artistic, aesthetic, ritualized space. It realizes its full animate potential when we cultivate Blake's double vision, or what Carl Jung called the active imagination. Quote, Jung spoke of active imagination, a technique for deliberately invoking visionary experiences, by which one can become aware of and interact with what he called imaginal beings embedded in visionary worlds. These beings, Jung says, know things and possess insights unknown to the person encountering them. They can say things that I do not know and do not intend. The encounter is a dialogue, a conversation between me and something else that is not me. These persons possess autonomy, independent knowledge, and the ability to form relationships like animals in the forest or people in the room or birds in the air. They have a life of their own. Of course, there's a lot of hubbub and clamor in the psychology world about Jung's work around imaginal beings, because it's easy and far more comfortable for modern minds to say that these beings live only in our brains, that they are figments of our imagination. Jung must have been speaking about these beings as mental archetypes, right? But as Bayer says, quote, Anthropologist practitioner Jenny Blaine specifically protests against turning spirits into culturally defined aspects of one's own personality, not external agents. Such reductionism is, she says, part of the individualization and psychologizing of perception that pervades Western academic discourses of the rational unitary self. End quote. So again, a little Occam's razor here. Maybe 99.9% of the human beings who've walked the planet sing to animate forces because they exist. Maybe we see animate beings in trance because they exist. Maybe the brain is constructed exactly as the world is, and our task is simply to put the two in alignment. For everything is an agreement between individual and world. Mythos provides a framework, gives a structure within which animate life can breathe. It gives these forces recognizable shape, makes them worthy of our attention, makes them gods, makes them recognizable, placatable, interactable, communicable. So whether or not you believe they reside just in our heads or in the outside world is irrelevant. We now have a map, a guide to the forces that move through our own lives. So we then start to approach place and each other differently. Like maybe I begin to notice that there is a forest glade with a particular confluence of dreamy light and bubbling waters and quartzite and that place allows me to forget my worries. I notice there is a bending bough of aspen at the entrance to the glade that is like a portal to this place. When I cross that threshold, I have entered a different world. 
I can now mythologize this portal. I can bring imaginal intention to it. When I need to cross a threshold, I can go there. I can say aloud, Aspen bow, aspen bow, now I cross over. Aspen tree, aspen tree, now I cross over. Aspen tree, aspen tree, now I cross over. The mythic geography is how we perceive what Tyson Yonkaporta in a recent conversation with a friend of mine called the signal, the signal of the law of the land. The mythic geography translates it into living, permeable architecture. And why is this law of the land important to align ourselves to? Because we don't actually live in a realm of abstract concepts that we can bandy about at our will because we know at the end of the day the rafters of our house will hold and we can walk over to the grocery store for our food. We live still in the world of animate forces. We need help to navigate a forest of stinging insects and medicines and poisons and fruit and all the walking vortexes known as people, some of whom it's probably best for us to be really careful around. There are places to stay away from. There are people to steer clear of. There are thoughts that are born of stagnant water or of overly frenetic air. There's music that might not be the best to listen to if you're already depressed. Simple, right? We have to become familiar with the configurations of harmony and disharmony that surround us. Become familiar with the pharmacy of forces within and without ourselves that exists to come to support us. If we integrate these forces into a coherent mythic geography... This doesn't mean we start ascribing ridiculous value to random experience. It means slowly, methodically building a world of relationality, a mandala of relationality, a co-agreement, a co-presence. The construction of this mytho-imaginal space means that when we reach those bardos, those intermediary spaces, the forces we encounter are coherent and recognizable and navigable and interactable, even as they remain wondrous so that perhaps we can be born into this world and inhabit this world and grow our children in this world and finally depart this world in good relation. So that when it comes time for that final journey, that final journey that all of us all will take, we leave not reeling in a turbulence of cacophonous forces, torn apart by all the things that we never resolved, not mired in chaos or drifting astray, or unable to focus that final thought, or coalesce all that we felt and thought and wrote into a singular simplicity, so that perhaps we can die like William Blake died. Quote, and when he died, as George Richmond reported, he died in a most glorious manner. He said he was going to that country he had all his life wished to see and expressed himself happy. Before he died, his countenance became fair, his eyes bright, and he burst out singing of the things he saw in heaven. burst out singing, eyes ashine, he burst out singing, singing of the mystic space he his whole life had access to, and reveled in, 
and whose geographies through art and story and ecstasy he had meticulously, purposefully mapped. Eyes ashine, he burst out singing. This episode contains reference to many books, articles, movies, etc. These include The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, The Mind in the Cave by David Lewis Williams, The First Complete Translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Gurme Dorje, 95 milligrams Intramuscular for the Evil Wizard, a post by Evil Wizard on Arrowid.org, William Blake Versus the World by John Higgs. And many special thanks to podcast listener Rob Beardwell for sending me a copy of this wonderful, wonderful book. Mapping Cloud Nine by Stephen Kotler. Spirited Away, the 2001 film by Hayao Miyazaki. Highly recommended. Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy by Mircea Eliade. Shaman, the Wounded Healer by Joan Halifax. The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. Recapture the Rapture by Jamie Wheel. Singing to the Plants by Stephen Beyer. My Saint is a Weed, post by Sophie Strand. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche. Deleuze, Guattari, and the Ada Tree, Mark Halsey, writing on rhizomes.net. First sun-dimming experiment will test a way to cool the earth, Jeff Tolleson, writing on nature.com on November 30th, 2018. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson. A Thousand Plateaus by Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. Have a Good Trip, the 2020 Netflix documentary, worth it for Sting's story at the beginning alone. And, of course, Turtles All the Way Down, the song by Sturgill Simpson. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n, dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination vision and wonder I don't think psychedelics are the the answer to the world's problems, but they could be a start.